Welcome to the Oral History Project of the DePaul Emeritus Society. My name is Jean Bryan, and today we are talking with Dr. James P. Krokar, former chair of the History Department and professor from 1981 until his retirement in 2014. Jim, thank you for coming today. Oh, I'm happy to do so. Professor Krokar, you grew up in Chicago and attended DePaul as a student, receiving your bachelor's degree in 1969. Will you share with us a little bit about the experience of being a DePaul student in those times? Sure. Um, I, like just about every DePaul student in those days, was a commuter. I lived on the south side around 81st and Damon and took two buses and an L to get here. Uh, I was a first-generation college student, as were most of my friends. Um, DePaul was much smaller. There was virtually no student life on campus. Uh, I'm frequently asked by colleagues and when I was teaching by students about the most exciting thing that happened at DePaul uh, during the late 60s, which was the uh, Black Student Association's takeover of the new building, SAC. And I have to say, I didn't have any classes on campus that day, so I didn't come in, so I totally missed it. <laughs> uh, but that, that was... Uh, that was really fairly normal. Uh, most of my friends at DePaul, uh, you know, were working as well as being first-generation college students. So you sort of worked around your work schedule and came in when you could. Uh, there were very few places for students to hang out. Uh, I can remember the cafeteria was in the basement of then Alumni Hall. And there was a big Greek presence. I wasn't Greek, but there were a lot of uh, fraternities and sororities. And none of them had houses or anything like that. Instead, they had wooden plaques with Greek letters on them that sat on tables uh, down in the basement of Alumni Hall. Uh, there were a few groups of students that somehow managed to get space. Uh, there were some old... Uh, row houses where Arts and Letters Hall now stand, uh, and one of them uh, was occupied by the yearbook. Uh, another one was occupied by the DePaulia. And for some reason that I have never been able to understand, the basement of one of those buildings had fallen to the history club. And because of that, lots of people who weren't even historians hung out at the History Club uh, uh, on Kenmore. Um, faculty, you know, it was, it was much smaller faculty. Uh, it was primarily a teaching school. I think I got a, an excellent education because I was able to go on to what was then a top graduate program. And when I first got in that graduate program, I was looking around at my compatriots, and there were people from Stanford and Yale where they had gotten their BAs. And I thought, oh, I'm toast. Uh, but I wasn't. Uh, you know, DePaul gave me a good education. Were you involved in any student activities at that time? Uh, well, I... Uh, I was in the History Club. Uh, I, I was also on the DePaulia and uh, was just about to quit the DePaulia when the entire mess blew up 
about the editorship of the paper, and that led to the founding of the independent newspaper, the Alethea. And so uh, I, I was not as involved in the Depaulia as I had been initially. I was working. And, but uh, I had to go with the Alethea because it would have been, it would have been a uh, seen as a uh, uh, betrayal if I had not done so. So then I was on the Alethea for a year, uh, writing. Could you tell us a little bit about that fallout between the newspapers? Well, the issue came about because the Depaulia was very outspoken, and. Uh, Typically, the the outgoing editors would nominate the next year's editors because they knew who was doing the work. Uh, Right before, this would have been near the end of my sophomore year, so that would have been, I think, 67, uh, there was a new advisor who was appointed. And uh, there was a uh, – the man you love to hate, Father Wangler, (laughs) who was, I think, in charge of student affairs back then. And and, uh, they rejected the the recommendation, and they appointed somebody who had hardly done any work at all for the newspaper – and so the staff walked out and set up the Alethea uh, as an independent uh, uh, independent corporation. Uh, they set up, they incorporated the Dickens Dayton Publishing uh, Company, uh, which uh, was named after the the basement apartment that they rented at, to the corner <laughs> of Dickens and Dayton. Uh, and the Alethea came out for a. a I think three or four years, because it continued after the time that I graduated in 69. Um, it's really sort of, uh, uh, it's sort of uh, amazing how outspoken the DePaulia had been, mainly about campus issues, but also about city issues. I remember there was, there was, they did one issue. Every year, they always did a joke issue, an April Fool's issue. And one year, their April Fool's issue was a takeoff on the New World, which was the uh, diocesan newspaper. And that was Cardinal Cody at the time, who was uh, he was not always on good terms with folks. And he was very upset. And I'm sure that's one thing that fed into, into the issue. But on the other hand, it's because of the outspokenness of the DePaulia that I came to DePaul. I was uh, on my high school paper, and the high school that I went to, which was a parish high school on the southwest side, uh, most of my friends wound up going to Loyola. But when I made the visit to Loyola and DePaul, what struck me at DePaul was the outspokenness of the newspaper and the fact that this outspoken paper was left out for students coming to see uh, campus. It was on display in what was then the liberal arts office in Levan. Uh, and I thought, well, this place is is uh, secure enough in its own identity. I didn't think of that in those terms then, but I, that's the way I would say it now. DePaul seems secure enough uh, to 
take criticism. So I, I decided to come here. I was one of the few people from, from my neighborhood who came here as opposed to Loyola. What an interesting segment of our history. Yeah. Um, you went on then to get your Ph.D. from Indiana University, and you joined the faculty, the history faculty here at DePaul in 1981. So what was it that brought you back a as job. a faculty member? <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, uh, the academic market was in history was not very good in the late 70s and the early 80s. Um, most of my friends that I went to graduate school with uh, either didn't get uh, teaching jobs or if they did, at least half of them wound up being denied tenure because schools were going through a rough patch financially. So it was ju I, I had been on the market a couple of years and I decided that uh, 81 was going to be my last shot, or it would have been 80 that I was searching for a job to begin in 81. Uh, and it just so happened that there, there was a job at DePaul. And ironically, I found out later on, I wasn't even the first choice for the job. I mean, many of the people that interviewed me were people that I knew, uh, but they offered the job first to a guy, a fellow who, who I also knew, because my field of Yugoslav history is not exactly one of the largest ones in, in America. And so I knew the guy who was offered the job, and he, he turned it down because uh, it would have, he'd been teaching for a couple of years, he'd been having trouble establishing himself, uh, and the job at DePaul was contingent on retraining yourself to teach in the new world history sequence that had just been instituted here. And he didn't want to do that. And so he left and became a financial planner. I'm still in touch with him, and he's much more financially stable than I am. <laughs> uh, but uh, so the fact that he turned it down, I got the job. And, and to give you an idea, I can... When they called to offer me the job, I had been offered a job elsewhere at a much worse school, but they wanted me first. And I remember the department chair, who was Corny Sippel, uh, came back and offered me a whole $300 more a year if I would accept the DePaul job. He didn't know that it, it wasn't the money situation. That 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 was confusing me at the time. It was it was the two offers. So, could you discuss some of the major events that um, you've seen um, during your time here on the faculty? Wow, a lot of them. Um, there's been well, first the tremendous growth that was instituted under uh, under uh, Dick Meister. Uh, and I'm kind of trying to remember whether he was an executive vice president. I think he was an EVP, not a provost, because that title keeps changing. Uh, so the growth in size, the growth in physical plan, and also the change in the student body that was brought about. Um, students are much more diverse. There are many, many more students who are who are not the typical first-generation college student, although I know we still, we, we're, uh, 
the university talks about we're actually educating more first-generation college students each year than we did back when I came here. But they make up less than half of the student body now, whereas they were all of the student body when I was a student. A good lesson in the difference between numbers and percentages. Right, yes, correct. Uh, along with along with the changes in in student body and size, there were also changes in expectations of faculty. When I started at DePaul, our teaching load was nine courses a year. Uh, when I retired, uh, the typical load was six courses. And because I had an administrative appointment then, I was really teaching four courses a year. I can't imagine how I taught nine courses a year, other than being much younger than I am now. Uh, and not needing as much sleep. Uh, I think the courses are more challenging. I mean, the, we're teaching fewer. When I, again, when I started, it was typical uh, to give a multiple choice test or to make a multiple choice test a large part of the grade. Uh, by the time I retired, I hardly ever gave a multiple choice test. Students were writing papers, they were writing out of class essays. Uh, they were performing at a much higher level. So uh, in, in general, I think the change, uh, uh, you can, as you can tell, I think the changes were for the better. Uh, not that it was a bad school, because part of this is DePaul just tracking what's going on in education nationally. Um, Another thing, the other thing that brought me here to DePaul was that world history course, which was a requirement for a number of years before the college changed the requirement. Uh, DePaul was actually one of the, the first schools in the country to require world history. I think it's a fact that people don't really understand. The reason I got involved in the, the textbook project that we produced in-house was there was nothing out there that could be used that was being sold by the big publishers. Today, if you're teaching a world history course, you have a choice of all kinds of, uh, of good textbooks. Uh, there weren't any then. There were things that were called world history textbooks, but they were European history w with the word world put on them. So, uh, so and I, uh, it's that, that world history... I think DePaul missed something there by not continuing to support that program. Um, can you think of any other events that occurred um, while you've been associated with DePaul that you want to add to that list? Well, of course, there's the big flood. What is that? That's now 25 years ago now. Fortunately, I taught at the Lincoln Park campus and didn't have to deal with that. Uh, I actually... Uh, May have, may have had a little uh, uh, envy of the people who got a few days off that I didn't get. One of your particular academic interests has been European history or Eastern European history. Um, and this has been a time of dramatic change in Eastern Europe. Um, in what ways have you been able to bring your field uh, and your expertise to the rest of the university community? Well, uh, there were always uh, forums on campus that would be held, not just for Eastern Europe, because with the, with the world history program, 
I actually had a chance to travel in Iraq in 1990. I was with the first American uh, academic group to get into Iraq, and it was the last American academic group to get into Saddam's Iraq. So then when the, the first Gulf War broke out the next year, there was all kinds of activity on campus where we were, I was participating in various forums. Uh, I was interviewed by the local press. I also developed courses uh, dealing with the developments, not in Iraq, but in, uh, in Eastern Europe. Uh, for about 10 years, I taught a course called The Rise and Fall of Yugoslavia, which, is, which was going on while the country uh, was uh, falling apart. So I began this in the early 90s and taught it into the early aughts of 2000. Um, it was an interesting course to teach because it's a surprise to many people, but historians don't believe history had much to do with the breakup of the country. The nationalist rhetoric was uh, rhetoric designed to uh, rally the forces. As a matter of fact, a, a number of people uh, have argued as well that nationalism was actually at low levels, relatively low levels in Yugoslavia, and it was whipped up by various politicians that wanted to uh, uh, to consolidate their own power by turning part of the populace against another part of the populace. Um, so I developed the course, ironically the history course, to tell people that ancient history had very little to do with what was going on. The course was interesting because there are so many South Slavs, Yugoslavs, who live in the Chicago area and who attended DePaul. Uh, typically, there had always been a large number of Croatian and Serbian students. And then because of our Human Rights Law Institute and its role in documenting the war crimes in Bosnia, the Bosnian refugees who came to Chicago started flocking to DePaul as students. So as I'm teaching this course, I would have you know, a bunch of history majors you know, from Peoria and Iowa and Los Angeles, and then I'd have a smattering of students either from the ethnic community or by the late 90s from various refugee groups. So that was really interesting. I, I remember one class where we started off with a rabid Croatian nationalist in the class uh, who was, you know, from an ethnic community in Chicago, and a rabid Serbian nationalist, a girl who had just moved from Belgrade. And so the first couple of weeks of the class, the two of them were at each other's throat. But then as the quarter went on, and it became clear that I was making the argument about, you know, the irrelevance of ancient history, those two students wound up allying against me and the rest of the class because we dumb Americans obviously didn't understand what was going on over there. Uh, that was one interesting case. And in another case, I had uh, a student, uh, and this was the one time I taught the class at night, 
So it was a three-hour block. I had a student who, who I knew was a Bosnian refugee. And I, as I was reviewing some of the material before one of the lectures, I was looking at a book that had been written about Sarajevo, and I saw her picture in it. Uh, the book was focused on one street in Sarajevo that had been multi-ethnic before the war and what had happened to the different people during the war. So I asked her, and sure enough, she was one of the people that was focused on in this book. Uh, and I, I, in a sense, I wonder whether I should, should not have asked her because then a week or two later, stuff just came pouring out. She just became totally emotional to talk about what had happened to her and that she had been one of the rape victims, which even the book had not gone into. And here's the rest of the class, you know, 28 DePaul students, or 29, staring at her, you know, and it really brought recent history alive for them because here is a victim who is now in the classroom with them. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so that class was one of the... Uh, one of the, uh, probably the high points of my teaching career. It was different every time I taught it. You have an avid interest in historical maps and their use in teaching, uh, were, and you were engaged with the DePaul Library in the effort to catalog the collection uh, for the university. Do you have any favorite maps in that collection? It's usually the last one I pick up, okay. Uh, I just love maps in general, and I became interested in them because I, I attended a, a Newberry summer seminar on using maps as primary sources, uh, which I had never considered as a possibility until I took that. But I loved maps. I knew I could get into the seminar because I had gotten into earlier seminars there, and it just opened a whole new world to me. So I began developing courses around this. I did a focal point. Uh, I also developed a history of cartography class in the history department for majors. And in all of these classes, the students had to use a map as a primary source of whatever. And we, we began with the, uh, the DePaul maps. And then uh, I did manage to teach one advanced history course uh, at the Newberry Brought, brought the students there, and so they were using Newberry maps, whose collection is... New, the Newberry has one of the foremost collections of historical maps in the world. So the DePaul collection paled. You know, how are you going to keep them down on the farm once they've seen Perry or the Newberry? All right. So, uh, but the students, a lot of students really enjoyed it, and then uh, we... Uh, the, pro the process of the cataloging, the, De the DePaul maps uh, were totally uncatalogued when I started this. And Catherine DeGraff, the archivist, was a good friend of mine. And, uh, you know, we would always play around and dig through the holdings and try and find something. Because I, I always had to find something uh, where I knew there 
there would be secondary materials that the students could use, that they could access. The map might be very interesting to me, but if it's in a foreign language that they can't read, or if the secondary literature was in a foreign language, we couldn't choose it. And we were running into problems. So um, I think it was Catherine who came up with the idea of the, of the cataloging project. And we developed an internship through the history department and a couple of students who had taken my map course and were attuned to things to look for in maps and things to look for even in maps that might be in French when their French was a little iffy. Uh, they worked in summers in developing a sort of a, a bibliography, which was then the basis of the, uh, the later uh, cataloging of the maps. Our, our archival collection is, uh, is spotty. There's stuff that people have left over the years. Father Ed Udovic uh, has been collecting French maps connected with uh, St. Vincent. So a lot of the maps are French. But there are other real gems in the collection. There is a, uh, a, a couple of hand-drawn maps of the Battle of Waterloo. And the provenance of those, I mean, Catherine can trace it back to who gave those maps to DePaul, but we don't know where this person got them. And they've apparently, they, they, those maps were apparently drawn by somebody who was in the Battle of Waterloo. Uh, what else is there in the collection? I don't know. There, there are some, some uh, maps having to do with... Uh, uh, the Midwest, uh, the French exploration of the Midwest, uh, and then there's a, there are a ton of maps of Chicago, obviously. Are there any students who particularly stand out for you over the years? Yeah, there's a number of them. Um, I know of at least two who went on to get doctorates themselves, uh, neither of them in Eastern Europe. But both of them did go through my course on nationalism and wound up specialized. One, uh, one Scott Eastman, who teaches at Creighton University, uh, uh, has written a book on Spanish nationalism. And uh, Ted Zervis, uh, who, who got his BA and his MA at DePaul and then got an EDD at Loyola, teaches at North Park University. And he has a book on uh, uh, Greek nationalism. So they stand out. Uh, there's also another student that stands out from the 80s for what he taught me about uh, what to expect of students. A fellow by the name of Chris Bruno. Uh, I, did, I did a lot of uh, summer advising of incoming students. And at some point, maybe 86, 87, Chris came through. Uh, during the summer, and he was a declared history major, and we didn't get a lot of those. Uh, and he was a graduate of Lane Tech, which is a good Chicago uh, high school, uh, and has been good even when there weren't any other good Chicago high schools. And Chris, uh, uh, Chris wound up taking my uh, world history course his first quarter. So here I've got this guy, and he graduated near the top of his class at Lane Tech. He's a declared history major. He takes his first exam, and he bombs it. He totally bombs it. 
And I, uh, I couldn't figure out what was going on. I called him in. Uh, he'd done okay on the objective part of the test, but the essay was just abysmal. And I said, Chris, what's, what's the issue? And he says, Dr. Croker, in my four years at Lane Tech, I never wrote a word. Everything was done multiple choice. And after I picked my job from the floor, I said, well, we got to do something about this. And uh, I sent him to the writing center. I was always a great fan of the writing center and worked with the folks there. And uh, by the end of the quarter, his writing was definitely improving. And uh, he didn't get an A out of the course, but he did manage to squeak out a B. Uh, and then he went on, and he graduated, and then went to law school, and is making a career as a lawyer, writing briefs. And I, I guess what that taught me at the time is, that I, you know, I was I came out of graduate school. Everybody I'd been with. As an undergraduate had known how to write, everybody in graduate school knew how to write. Uh, and I sort of expected that students were going to bring writing skills with them when they went to university. And Chris, who was a very smart guy and, as I say, has gone on to a very successful career as a lawyer, uh, I, I had – I. You know, I had to give him a bad grade uh, and cause him chagrin, but also to teach myself that writing is a skill and somebody who's intelligent. And, and our high schools are not always teaching the students what they need to know in college. And I think I was more, uh, uh, more willing to help students, more forgiving, and trying to sign them up with... Uh, the assistance that they needed uh, to bring their skills up to uh, up to par. Um, the changes in the students and also um, what you've been learning from the students, how has that changed you as a university professor? How has that profession changed over the years? Part of it is there's less of the the solitary expert pontificating and more collaboration uh, because if you if you're really committed to getting the students uh, up to snuff and and getting letting them get a degree that means something I came to realize that you have to collaborate with other people uh, we never talked much about teaching styles in the department when I first started we did begin, we did get a, a, I think it was an NEH grant to talk about how to teach world history, but it was more content related than, than, uh, uh, than sort of process related. But I think as time went on, we were more interested in the process of learning and the way students uh, could learn and how we could best facilitate that in our classes. I mean, I am happy no longer to be writing learning goals because I seem because I took it seriously from the beginning. It seems like I had 47 iterations of learning goals, uh, 
as the university said, no, no, let's tweak it this way, let's tweak it that way. That was one of the irritating things. But uh, it helped to, to sensitize me. And I know there's faculty that aren't, that just, I mean, one reason the university had 47 iterations was there are some people that, you know, didn't pay attention the first 46 times and probably didn't pay attention the 47th time either. Uh, they remain the the solitary pontificating expert at the front of the room. Are there any colleagues over the years that you particularly would like to remember? Oh, yes. Uh, Corny Sipple, who was my undergraduate advisor, the department chairman who hired me, and for a long time was a model of what a great teacher was. Uh, it was Corny's courses that taught me all I needed to know to get through graduate school with those Yale and Stanford grads. Uh, so I definitely, uh, I definitely think he stood out. When the Liberal Arts College instituted the first teaching award, Corny was one of the first recipients in the first round. Um, another person I'd like to talk about in the, in, uh, the department is Hal Erlbacher, who for a long time, and still, because Al is around, I always thought of as the conscience of the department. And uh, I always thought it was kind of funny that if you had a moral problem, You'd go to the Jewish guy at the Vincentian School to try and figure out how to handle it. But I think that summed up what DePaul was about. Uh, another one is Dan Goffman, uh, who was hired in uh, to be, uh, he was an outside hire to be department chair at DePaul and really shook us up in the history department. Uh, it was under him uh, that we, uh, instituted the, the, the student conference that we have every year, and that sort of became a model for a lot of other departments in liberal arts. He, he had done something similar at, uh, uh, at uh, Ball State, where he taught previously. Uh, he, uh, he restructured the department. He, you know, the history department, like every other department at DePaul, was struggling with how to run itself as the university got bigger and bigger. And he was responsible for our being one of the first departments in liberal arts to come up with a written document, essentially a constitution. Um, it was, it was unfortunately, Dan had a, he had a stroke early. Uh, I think he'd only been here four years and had, he, he's, he's been an emeritus professor since. Um, so, but he, he was a tremendous person. And then Dick Meister, and I was going to say he's outside the department, but then it just turned to me, Dick is, was a historian too. <laughs> Although Dick was, Dick was also hired from the outside as dean. As a matter of fact, I remember he was hired the same, <coughs> excuse me, the same year that I was in 81. And I heard stories from the departments that some people in the department were harumphing they didn't want to have to grant him tenure. <laughs> Fortunately, they did, uh, because he, he became so important, not just for uh, the College of Liberal Arts, but then as uh, EVP 
slash provost, whatever his title was. Uh, he was so important for the, for the whole uh, the whole institution. So those are four people who I think of uh, uh, frequently. And then also there's one other that I will mention, uh, a younger colleague of mine, Margaret Story, from the history department, who uh, uh, she's our Civil War specialist. Uh, Margaret is a uh, a brilliant teacher and a brilliant uh, a brilliant researcher, and she has done a heck of a lot uh, in terms of structuring the the history majors that currently exists at DePaul. She was the head of our curriculum committee uh, and worked at introducing our students not just introducing, but giving them practice in doing research as undergrads. She did this in conjunction with, with the, uh, the conference that we set up, but now it's just routine for a history major to use primary sources from their sophomore year on and to use them regularly so that I didn't have to worry when I turned students loose at the Newberry uh, on their resources. And, and much of that has to do with the, the work that Margaret did to restructure our, our history major. You have been teaching and living through some very tumultuous times, through great political and social changes. What does the study of history bring to us during times of change? When I was younger, I probably would have said it gave us context. But I'm not sure that the context is the most important thing. One thing that history does is to teach you to evaluate sources and to evaluate evidence. And given what's going on in our country today, I wish more people knew how to evaluate evidence. Uh, I'm thinking, for example, uh, you know, the terrible thing that happened in Las Vegas. The shooting a couple of days ago, and and I I had on the the uh, uh, the cable. I was going back and forth for the cable channels, and at one point, ISIS claimed that this guy was, you know, he was one of their operatives, which is insane. Okay, but here are talking heads on CNN and MSNBC exploring the possibility that this this guy, this, you know, white Anglo-Saxon guy from <laughs> gambler by avocation is an ISIS operative. And I mean, the thing is, I'm thinking, I'm hoping the history students will say, well, ISIS is on the ropes. It's losing it's losing uh, land in the Middle East. It is obviously going to try and claim that this is the case, and it's not a plausible claim. And and to separate the plausible from the implausible is something that the historical method teaches you to do. You have to try and get into a past that's long gone, uh, and understand the methods that historians have developed over the years to evaluate evidence. So I, that's what I would say today. We've been speaking with Dr. James P. Crocar, past chairman of the Department of History at DePaul University. 
Thank you, Dr. Krokar, for coming and talking with us. Thank you. I enjoyed it. For the DePaul Emeritus Society, I am Jean Bryan.